First time I've ever seen people run up for announcements. Great job, Temi and Diamond. Let's give a round of applause for our Olympic runners. Fantastic. Well, hey, it is so good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with our college ministry, and I am so excited to continue our incredible, albeit a little bit depressing, series on Ecclesiastes, okay? So, yeah, that's right. Some of you guys like it. It's a good time. If you got a Bible, would love for you to open up, up tonight. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I say this every Thursday, but if you're new here to Salt Company, if this is your first time, we are so thankful that you're here. You are not the only new person in this room. We'd love for you to get connected and, and join the family. We are so excited that you're here. Quick heads up as we go into the sermon tonight. Later on in the sermon, I am going to share something that's a little bit raw that might actually feel a little bit uncomfortable to you. I hope it doesn't cause discomfort for you, but I hope that you see through my weakness and into the beauty of Christ. I think it will be hopefully an encouraging moment for you, but I want to give you a heads up because this sermon hits close to home, and I hope it does for you as well. Hey, let me pray for us as we enter into our time together. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the grace written on every chapter. Thank you for Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that everything is meaningless under the sun apart from you. Thank you for Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as we look at what it looks like to have perspective in the pain. Father, I pray that tonight would be a holy moment, that people would encounter you in a real way, that the, the walls would come down, the shades would go up, and that people would be able to see face to face with you. Father, pray that this would stir in people's hearts an affection to know you more. Pray that this would be a night of healing and of transformation, but also a life of challenge and conviction. Pray that the word of God would be beautiful, not to us, not to Salt Company, not to any individual in this room, but unto you. Would you receive the glory? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so my question for you to start out our time together is how do you deal with the problems of life? Okay, some of you guys, we got some fixers in the room. We got some fixers, mansplainers. You know what I mean? Like you, someone shares with you a problem, and you're like, have you ever tried this solution? And they're like, I don't care. Like you got some fixers. You got a problem in your life. Who cares about your emotions? Who cares about anything else? Just fix it, okay? Second group. Someone's like, yes, sir. Is that what I heard over there? Like, that's me. I, I really need this. Okay. Second group of people, we got some avoiders, some avoiders in the room. Oh, procrastinators. This is me, guys. Honestly, laugh now, cry later. Like, you guys get this? When your final is impeding, you have not studied a second the night before. You're like, I wonder what the final is going to be about. Like, you're like, shoot. You're doing calculus-level math at 10 p.m. You're like, okay, so I've got nine hours between now and the second I have to step into that room. How many of them should I sacrifice for studying? Is that four or five, you know, you're like doing the math. That's tough. You just avoid it. You got a problem, just avoid it. Third group of people is what I like to call the chill people. They're like, yeah, I know there's problems, but if you just care less, you know, their encouragement for people when they're anxious is like, have you ever tried to be chill? And they're like, okay, we're not friends. Like, that's what it feels like to be around people who are like so chill that they don't care about any of the problems in the world. Don't mean to call you out, but that's just, that's the way it is. Here's the problem with dealing with problems in your life that way. 
The problem is there are certain problems in your life that you cannot fix or solve. When you're seven years into marriage and you hit rock bottom and you thought to yourself you would never divorce your partner, but here you are about to make a decision that will def define the trajectory of your life. That's not a problem that you can just fix. There are certain problems in your life you can't avoid. When you wake up day by day, moment by moment, and every single morning you wake up with a war in your mind that you try every weekend just to forget about, just to distract yourself from the pain, just to medicate it through alcohol, through smoking, whatever it is, but you cannot avoid it. It keeps coming back in your mind day by day. There are certain problems that you can't just be chill about. Look, our lead pastor, Drew, talked about this a couple weeks ago, but when his kid was in the hospital with a congenital heart defect and had months to live, he couldn't just care less about the death of his son. So here's what the world offers you in solutions to all of your problems and pains and the suffering of this life. It offers you options to fix it, to avoid it, or to care less about it. But here's what the Bible is going to offer you tonight. The Bible is going to offer you perspective. It is going to show you the hand of God in all of the suffering of your life. It is going to show you the ways that God uses suffering for our good. He uses us to refine who we become and our souls would be more beautiful because of the suffering of this life. So tonight, we're going to be looking at three different perspectives that we need if we want to endure the pain if we want to enter into suffering with a renewed perspective, we need a new perspective of our setting. We need a new perspective on our priorities. And thirdly, we need a new perspective on authority. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. Here's what it says. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. <laughs> Anyways, after all. Everyone dies. It like gets worse. You're like, oh, there's got to be. No, the second one is after all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. You thought last week was a bummer. Welcome back to Salt Company. Boom, Ecclesiastes. Still cheering us up. Okay. Quick note I want to make before we jump into our time together. The first one is uh, we are teaching out of the NLT tonight, New Living Translation. Here's why. I just like it. It's not because I'm fruity what I told the leaders. Okay, I just like it. That was a tough one at Leaders Retreat. But anyways, moving on. NLT. We're teaching out of the NLT tonight partly because I like it, partly because I want to make a point. That's right. I'm a pastor. I make points, okay? Here's my point. One of the most misunderstood aspects of Christianity is this anti-Christian rhetoric. Hear this. It usually goes something like this. Well, okay. You can't be serious. The Bible? Wasn't that handed down by king to king, edits over thousands of years? There's no way that the modern Bible is the same as the one that was original. Have you guys heard that? Here's the problem with that. Although philosophically it makes sense, it's literally untrue. It's a bad understanding of history. Doesn't matter if that's your opinion. What do atheist scholars say about the Bible? Here's what atheist scholars say about the Bible. The current Bible in your hand, on your app, the one you own, is 99.5% accurate to the original Hebrew and Greek. The Bible is the most fascinating book ever written. The Bible has more than 5,500 word-by-word handwritten manuscripts. Let me just compare that with another ancient text you might know, the Iliad or the Odyssey. It is eight times more than any other ancient text we have. Here's what that means. 
if you throw out the Bible because you do not believe in the historical literacy of the Bible, you have to throw out every other book written before the 1800s, which I'm just assuming you're unwilling to do because that would be dumb, okay? So don't do it. That'd be lame. Now you might be asking, what about translations, Tony? Great question. Let's talk about that. Why are there like cabillion translations, okay? Here's what translations exist to do. It exists to modernize the phraseology of the Bible. Cool word, I know. But not the message or meaning. Okay, here's what I mean. The NLT is just a kind of more modern version of the ESV. And in this text, what we're going to see is in the ESV, it calls it a house of mourning. What the NLT calls it is a funeral. Same idea, same message, a little bit more modern phraseology. A house of feasting to a party. This is what the Bible translations do. They just modernize the English so we don't talk like people from the 50s in Britain, okay? Even though I will usually teach out the ESV because it's better. But anyways, the NLT is also great. That's what translations exist to do. Okay, if you have more questions, let me know after service. I should get back to my sermon now, but it's just one of my pet peeves because people are like, oh my gosh, Christians are so dumb. They believe in this old book. I'm like, okay, I'm dumb, but there's smart people who believe in Jesus, okay? The Bible is fantastic. All right, let's go back to our depressing text. Verse 2. Better to spend your time at funerals than parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. All right. You read this and you're like, okay, Solomon, what kind of parties are you going to, okay? There are better parties than funerals. Like, this feels a little bit out of pocket. How could Solomon be trying to make the case that funerals are somehow better than parties? Here's why. Because funerals are not fun, but they are formative. Here's a distinction I'm going to make between parties and funerals. Parties can distract you, but funerals can focus you in. See, here's the reality about parties. Parties are incredible distractions to the pain of life. They can medicate the pain that you feel. They can distract you from the reality of your soul. They can put off the pain inside of your heart for one night or two nights or maybe even three nights in a row, but they cannot solve your pain. Hear me say this. Parties can distract you, but they can only do for you what you want them to do in a moment, but they can't solve the deepest problems in your life. Listen, some of you guys came to college, and you're like, man, I can't wait to party. Some of you guys are like, man, I, I can't wait for the weekend. And listen, parties are fun for a moment, but you regret them almost immediately. The next day you wake up regretting what you've done, and here's what's true. Parties can numb the pain inside of your heart. But parties and distractions only make that pain bigger. They don't heal you. Which is why some of you are in here tonight and you've spent the last couple of years of your life thinking that distraction and parties would actually heal your soul. But the reality is it has done the complete opposite. It has made the problems in your life worse. You're more depressed than you were. You're more anxious than you were. The sadness is overwhelming. That's what parties can do. They can distract you, but they can't heal you. They, you need something more. So here's what funerals do. Funerals can focus you. I want you to think about this reality. When you go to a funeral, there is a sober reality. When you look at the person in the casket and you think to yourself, one day that will be me. The truth of the matter is you will die. You will breathe your last breath, you will hug your last friend, you will say your last word. And the question in your mind should not be, will I die? For that answer is clear. The question should be, in light of the reality that I will die, how will I choose to live today? See, here's what funerals can do. They can focus you in and make you ask really important questions that can be a clarifier in your life. 
So this first point is just setting us up for the rest of the sermon. That funerals are better than parties. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. Pain is a far better teacher than pleasure. Suffering will sanctify you more than comfort. And funerals are better than parties. Tim Keller says, you will never understand your heart when things are going well. It is only when things go badly that you can see it truly. And that's because... It is only when suffering comes that you realize who the true God is and what all the false gods are in your life. Listen, the reality is it is incredibly easy to say, I trust God when things are going well. It is easy to say, I trust him when the sport is going well, when the relationship is going well, when your school is going well, when your anxiety is not flared up. But here's what suffering does. It reveals in you where your actual trust structures lie. Who do you trust in, yourself or God? This is what suffering reveals. Okay, so have you guys ever been driving at like 6 a.m. in the dead of winter in Minnesota? When you got up before the sun and you're like, okay, this is problematic. You're like 30% alive. You're like trying to inject caffeine into your veins. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a real thing. All of us have been there like, oh my gosh, okay. And then you hit a patch of ice. I mean, it is terrifying. You're like, oh my gosh, losing control. You're like almost like swerve into a curb. And then guys, suddenly you go from being 30% awake to like 130% awake. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I have never been more alert in my life. Like it's like you got bit by that radioactive spider, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can see everything. Like that's, that's what it feels like. Why? Why is it that in one moment you can go from being sleepy and apathetic to alive and awake? Here's why. The impeding death, the impeding death wakes you up. Here's what funeral seasons can be in your life. They can wake you up from an apathetic walk with Jesus. One of my favorite pastors often says, easy pass makes sleepy Christians. My fear for some of you in this room is that you've gotten quite bored with the things of God. And you figured out a way that you can claim that you're a Christian, do Christian things, come to Salt Company, go to campus group, and live the rest of your life like Jesus is not the Lord of your life. Where you can be asleep, awake about 30%, gliding through the rest of your life. See, what I believe that God is going to do to some of you tonight, he's, he's going to show you that the suffering in your life was meant to wake you up to shake you out of a place of apathy so that your life, at the end of your life, at your funeral, people would not say of you that you were a sleepy Christian, but that you lived fully alive. Okay, so that's the setting. We need to understand that funerals are actually better than parties, that parties can distract you, but funerals bring a season of suffering that brings clarity and focus to your life. The second thing we need to know is that we need a new perspective on our priorities. Look with me to verse 1. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. And the day you die is better than the day you are born. So dark, goodness. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool only thinks about having a good time. This is not something you should put in your Instagram bio. <laughs> so dark, okay. I start in verse 1. A good reputation is better than perfume. So the question is, why is Solomon talking about perfume? Okay, here's what perfume was at that time. 
You couldn't get the cheap stuff back then. You know what I mean? Like the $7 perfume that like stops smelling after like 30 minutes. Like that stuff did not exist back in whatever, you know, 3000 BC. Whatever it is, a long time ago. Didn't exist. So perfume was only, writ- was only worn by people who had excess, who were wealthy. Perfume was the ultimate status symbol. It was like driving a Lambo. Like people, like, you know, you walked by and they could just smell you. They're like, this person is awesome. Okay, that's what it was. It was a complete status symbol. And here's what Solomon says, that a good reputation is better than status. Now, the reputation he's talking about is not your outward appearance, but actually the condition of your soul. He's saying this, character and integrity before the Lord is better than status before men. And here's why this is so important for us, because in our culture, no one cares about your character. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. As long as you can drive the nice cars, as long as you can wear the newest clothes, as long as you have a lot of following and clout and currency, that's what our culture values and that's what we will inherently begin to value in our lives. We will value the status before men, before our soul, before God every day of the week. So here's what Ecclesiastes 7 is trying to teach us. Your soul is more important than your status. Listen, I want you to understand this. God cares far more about who you will become than what you do. He cares far more about your soul than your status. And because he does, we should as well. So here's how this this new perspective, this new priority will help you to endure pain. Okay? When you realize that your goal in life is not to be comfortable, it's not to seek pleasure, but it's to live a Christ-like life. When you realize that your goal is not for you to accrue more status, but have your soul be so sanctified and made holy that before a holy and righteous God, he could say, well done, my good and faithful servant. If your goals, your priorities change from what other people think about you to what you will be like the day after you die, standing before the Lord, then you don't have to run from suffering, but you can actually accept it as the primary way the Bible tells us that God will make us holy. Listen, this, this is countercultural stuff. In our culture, when you're suffering and you're in pain, the only thing our culture tells you to do is alleviate it right away, to get out of it right away. Just get through it as quickly as you can. Here's what the Bible will call you to do. In your suffering, God will ask you, what am I trying to teach you here? This is what Romans 5 says about suffering this slaps okay this is really good less discouraging than ecclesiastes i just had to pipe some hope in here okay look at romans 5 but not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us so i'll come to here's what's true if you are a christian if your life has been redeemed by the holy and righteous God who is residing in you and has given you his spirit, you can rejoice in your sufferings. Not just try to move by it, not just buck against it, but actually rejoice in the reality that the sufferings of your life is producing endurance in you, which produces character, which produces hope, and your hope will not put you to shame. This is completely different than every other worldview. I know I've already talked about this, I'm beating a dead horse. But atheism says your suffering is random. Buddhism says get out of suffering quickly as possible. Hinduism says suffering is a punishment. God says suffering is trying to make you more like him. 
Suffering is trying to give you a hope that cannot be taken from you. The most hopeful people I've ever met in my life are people who have suffered much. Because they've been in the valley. They've lost their loved one. They've been through season after season of depression, of loneliness, anxiety, and anger, and yet God, God was with them. And he used those seasons of suffering to make them hopeful people. Listen, if you want to have hope, if you want to have an unshakable hope, then suffer with Christ. Keller says, Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. The point of biblical suffering is this, is that in your pain, in the suffering of your life, you will look more like Jesus. Next part, meet my friend Dave. He's going to be on the screen. Dave, please. Yes, that's David. Okay. Now take him down. What the heck? Half naked. Guys, I'm not going to lie. The whole statue is completely naked, so I couldn't do it. But, you know, you can look it up later if you want, but it's not recommended. That's Dave. David is a statue. You know, he's actually a person in the Bible. But, you know, there's a statue made by him, by Michelangelo, in the 1500s. The real David is considered one of the most beautiful statues of all time. He stands 14 feet tall. He is made out of sheer marble and made by one of the best artists of all of human history. And when Michelangelo was asked, dude, how did you do that? Because, guys, it took this man two years with a little pick and a hammer, like, for two years. Can you imagine doing that for two years? I can't. When asked of Michelangelo, how did you carve David? He said one simple sentence. He said, I clipped away everything that wasn't David. Okay, here's what God is going to do to you for the not next two years, but for the rest of your life. He is going to chip away everything in you that isn't Jesus. Moment by moment of suffering, season by season of pain, he will take his chip and his hammer and he will chip away every part of you, every self-dependent, reliant part of you, every sinful part of you, every pride part of you that thinks you can do life without him. He will chip that away so that one day you will be made like him. You will spend the rest of your life chipping away in your life everything that isn't Jesus. So here's God's priority for your life. Not status, accrual, but soul transformation. And if that's true, then we can see suffering as the primary means by which he has called us to look more like him. The third thing we need to understand is a new perspective on authority. Look with me to verse 5. Better to be criticized by a wise person than be praised by a fool. Least depressing part, wouldn't you say? Like, it's kind of nice. It's not like encouraging. I'm just saying it's like not crazy. Okay. Listen, I want you to understand this. Much of suffering in your life is out of your control. If you get hit by a drunk driver, that's out of your control. Some of your hormonal dispositions in your mind is out of your control. Much of my childhood, having an abusive dad, growing up in poverty, experiencing racism, that was out of my control. And that God wants to heal. But what I'm about to say next is much less tweetable, okay? It is not something people pretty much ever say in churches either, so just brace for it. 
There is much suffering in your life that is not your fault. And there's also a category of suffering in your life that is. See, here's what sin does. You do sin, and then sin does you. You disobey God, and then the consequences for that shipwreck your life. John Mark Homer says, we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. Who you become is a culmination of all of the decisions in your life. And here's what sin is. Sin is actively rebelling against God against his design, his desires, and his word. It is choosing to live your life versus living the life that God has called for you. And here's what's true. Sin always leads to death. It is the death of your relationships, death of your mind, death of your body, death of your soul. The wages of sin is death in this life and the next. There's a category by which the suffering in your life is a consequence of your sin. Listen, some of you guys, have experienced this already, even without me putting theological language to it, you know when a breakup feels like divorce. When you dated that person for two years and you gave to them your body, the thing that was reserved biblically for your future spouse, you know when that pain in your heart feels like a covenant was ripped apart and that's because sin has consequences. You know what it's like to lose relationships because your insecurity and your covetousness got in between intimacy with that person. You know the impacts of sin on our life. But here's the problem with sin. It kills us and we keep going back for more and more. It is the true and ultimate addiction. It is the drug that none of us can get free from on our own. You want it, you do it, you get consumed by it, and you can't stop. That is the reality of sin. So here's what we need. We need a biblical category called rebuke. That word in verse 5 says criticism. In the ESV it says rebuke. Rebuke is a sharp word by someone who loves Jesus and loves you, calling you to change. Discipling you. Saying, hey, that sin in your life is killing you. And you need to fight against it. That's what we need. We need a person in our lives that is willing to rebuke us. But in order to do that, we need to understand a new perspective on authority. Guys, here's the reality. In our culture right now, authority is being deconstructed at every level. Your parents' authority, your professor's authority, any institution, including the church. Every single level of authority in our culture right now is being deconstructed. And most and much of that is actually really good. Because the truth is, human systems have always had structural problems because people who are running it are sinful people. And there's been abuse in every level of human institution. Maybe for some of you, you're here tonight and you actually get anxious even me talking about this because you've experienced a certain level of abuse even within the church. And so that I want to say two things. One is, that is not the heart of God. God consistently through the Bible overturns regimes run by abusive people who wanted themselves more than him. And the second thing is, I don't want you to give up on biblical authority because there's a type of authority in your life, a type of person in your life that cares far more about your holiness than your happiness, cares far more about your formation than the fun you have. There are people in your life that want to invest in you and see you grow. This is the category of rebuke. Listen, this is going to be one of the most important things I say all year long. One of the most countercultural things you can do in 2023 to live a life for Jesus 
is to welcome rebuke by authority in your life. In a culture that says, speak your truth, the Bible says, listen to rebuke. I remember, this is the uncomfortable part. Uh, year one of marriage for me and my wife, Josie, was a shipwreck. And guys, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of mad at God because I was like, listen, God, I thought that as long as I love Jesus and my wife loved Jesus, it would be kumbaya. You know what I'm saying? Like two plus two equals four. Jesus lover plus Jesus lover equals happy. Like I was like, that's the equation we agreed upon. Never did. But you know, I was like, come on. How dare you give, take this away from me? But the first year of marriage, I came in with just an insane amount of baggage, insecurity, inability to be intimate, without a servant heart, and so did she. And so about a year into marriage, we're like, things are looking really rough. And Drew, my pastor at our church, Redemption Church, who's my mentor and my pastor, sat me down and in love rebuked me. And he told me that if I didn't change, that I was gonna fail out of ministry and my marriage wouldn't last. He was right. I had to change. I had to get healing with Jesus. I had to go to therapy. I had to give up of my life so that I could love Jesus, love Josie the way that Jesus has loved me. I was the problem and I had to change. Two years later, after that conversation, our marriage is healthier than it has ever been. And it was because someone in my life loved me enough to say the hard thing to me. Listen. Maybe the reason for some of you, the reason why you're not the person that you want to become is because you have let no one speak into your life. You have no one in your life that is saying hard things about you, to you, about the condition of your soul. So here's my invitation for you. Find people in your life that are willing to say the hard things to you. Some of you guys are here and you come on Thursday nights and you think that's what it means to be a part of Christian community. Listen to me. You need to join a campus group. And the week one, even if it's uncomfortable, you need to show up to campus group and say, listen, I want rebuke in my life because I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want to be more like me. I want to be more like him. I need to change. I want to become a man or woman of God, not of culture. I want to become a man or woman that looks like Jesus, not like myself. And the only way that is going to happen in the kingdom of God is if you submit yourself to some level of biblical authority and say, listen, I want you to call out in me what needs to change. So here's my invitation for all of you, whether you're in a campus group or not, this week, go to campus group and just say, hey, here's my junk. I want to open myself up so that you could speak into my life. Okay, so in review... If we want to endure the pain of life, here are three new perspectives we need. We need a new perspective on our setting. That funerals aren't fun, but they are formative. We need a new perspective on our priorities. God cares more about our soul than our status, and so should we. And we need a new perspective on authority. We need rebuke to become who we were made to be. Okay, as I call the worship band back up, here's the good news of this sermon. Perspective 
helps us to endure the pain. Like we need perspective if we want to endure the pain of this life. But perspective actually does more than that. It produces a deep peace within us. And there is no greater example of peace in the pain than Jesus at the garden. Look with me to Matthew 26. This is one of my favorite verses. Actually, I actually have a tattoo of it, but it is one of my favorite verses. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Listen to this next sentence. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Jesus at the garden is one of the most sobering moments of human history. Think about this. This is the final moments before he's going to be crucified. We talked about this a couple weeks ago where he would be beaten and crowned with the corn of thorns and held on a cross. This is moments before he dies, moments before he's going to endure the worst pain of his life. And the best way to describe Jesus in this moment is incredibly anxious. He is sweating out blood. He knows the crucifixion that is to come. And what does he say? He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This man had peace in the pain. Listen, the question for us tonight is how the heck did he do that? And here's the answer. It's because he trusted his father more than the pain. He trusted in the sovereignty of God and trusted that God would give him purpose in his pain, gave him perspective on his pain. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is my last quote of the night. Jesus lost all his glory so we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus, listen to this, took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you that has been cast away from God. He did that so all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. So this is how we suffer with perspective. As Jesus trusted his father, so we trust him. And we say, Jesus, this is really painful. This is a really hard season, but I trust you. You're the one I trust. As we enter into a moment of worship, we're actually gonna be launching something called prayer teams. So that's Issa, she's very excited. During the first two songs, a couple of our student leaders are just gonna go out into the lobby. And if during this sermon, God is just stirring in you that you're in a suffering season and you need perspective beyond yourself, we'd love to invite you to go out and receive prayer from them. So as we close our time together, Here's my encouragement for you. Atheism says suffering is random. Buddhism says suffering is something to be avoided. Hinduism says suffering is punishment, but here's what Jesus Christ says. Suffering will make you holy and righteous in him. So you can have faith in the days to come that God will not leave you in your suffering. Let me pray that be true for us. Father, as we sing the song, Son of Suffering, I am constantly reminded of how you used 
suffering in my life, to chip away things in my life that didn't look like you, and you will continue to for the rest of my life. You will make me like David and Michelangelo. You are my chipper. You are my artist, and you are making me holy. And Father, I pray tonight that there would be a supernatural peace that comes with perspective, that people would see that every step of the way, every moment of suffering, every moment of pain, you are with them, transforming them, and making them to look more like you. And Lord, as I think about my life, through all of those hard days in that apartment in Nashville, through all of the pain of my life, I can look back and say, I have peace, a peace that makes no sense. Because all of the suffering in my life drove me to my knees, and it is on my knees that I found you. So Jesus, make us holy. Make us be people who are like a diamond that come out of coal. This is who you are. This is what you do. And it is in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.